Hello, everyone, and welcome to The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by my magical co-host, Meg Palladino, and our amazing guest expert, Jennifer Ruth, professor of film at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon, frequent contributor at the Academ blog, and co-author of It's Not Free Speech, Race, Democracy, and the Future of Academic Freedom. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Jennifer about academic freedom, the rise of fascism on our campuses, and the consequences of speaking up in the academy. Jennifer, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Meg is going to kick us off with a fun question. Excellent. Thanks. Welcome. So today's question is, what is the your favorite item that you bought this year? Oh, wow. That's a great one. My favorite item that I bought this year. Well, you know, I have a lot of issues with money in that I'm really, I'm one of those, like what Barbara Iron, Aaron and I like, called Falling the Middle, I can't remember the title of that book, but it was about the middle class anxieties about falling into homelessness or whatever. I am classic. I have a pretty privileged upbringing, and yet I'm so anxious about money. So in my household, I'm the one who does not spend, and I, I make fun of all of my husband and my two daughters as spendthrifts, as superficial, and needing to buy everything that's out and in a new style. I'm always making fun of them. It's a very like easy, high ground <laughs> to claim to be moralistic. So th- to be totally honest, the things that are I've the items that I'm really happy about that I have were not bought by me. My husband has a really good eye for things and and he's he's the interior director. We, our gender roles are a little bit swapped in that he's much more interested in fashion and style and color and interior decoration. And so he buys me clothes for, you know, big holidays or birthdays. And at first I don't pretty like them and they're not things that I would choose for myself. And then I find a sort of going back to the slow adapter thing, like it takes me a while to kind of make myself familiarize with something. I find that he is, his, what he gets me are the things that I love. So actually I have a raincoat right behind me. And, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, where a raincoat is pretty damn important. And there's this nice quality. I get cheap things for myself. He gets quality. It's nice quality raincoat that I wear all the time now. So I didn't buy it for myself. That's my own pathology, but it was bought for me and it's my favorite thing. I love that. I suffer from that as well. I mean, not buying myself nice stuff. So in fact, my favorite things that I've been buying this year are at the Goodwill. That's <laughs> me. And secondhand shops and even finding books through Amazon. But secondhand books, right? Like I'm kind of into the used everything now. Same. Yeah, it fits both my anxiety about spending money and my sense of the planet and the environment, right? Exactly. So it kind of gets kind of Oh, it's death. <laughs> right. It's me feel good for half a minute. Okay, Meg, what about you? So I'm generally pretty stingy and I'm big at thrifting too. Like, But the thing I actually paid money for that like into was one of those cat clocks with the eyes and the tail and go back. One. I like caught one of those and hung it in the kitchen and I'm like, I just love it. <laughs> That's great. That is joy. That is filled with joy. That is very, I love that. That is fun. Okay, let's get into this because it's all about free speech or not free speech. So you co-authored It's Not Free Speech, Race, Democracy, and the Future of Academic Freedom, 
published last year. We would love to hear more about your motivation for writing the book and some thoughts on how it's been received. Thank you. I love this question for the motivation question, because first of all, we really rely heavily on Charles W. Mills, unfortunately, who passed away a year or two ago, the political philosopher who critiques John Rawls and social contract theory and the idea that any kind of starting from a premise of ideal theory that evacuates history, reality, just, you know, things that we blind spots that we don't want to acknowledge, all of those things, you drop all that out and you get a very skewed version of things. So we rely on him and there's a way in which you can't really even understand our book without the context in which it was written and which I think it continues to be important and will be for a long time. But we're dealing with liberal abstraction, free speech, academic freedom, that people are very comfortable talking about as abstractions and not historicizing and contextualizing. So I love the motivation question because it gets you into the time and place and what you're trying to do. And so when we wrote, when we began the book, we began the book before George Floyd was murdered, but we were seeing the ways in which you know, but Trump had already been in office and there was a way in which we were we were possibly I hate to say this now. I've, I feel like I've changed so much in such a short amount of time, but we were possibly typical white classic liberals. Michael and I, I'm speaking about my, my co-author, Michael Barry Bay and I, who were, would have been the kind that was like to like like you just say the best antidote for bad speech is more speech, you know, completely not considering the fact that we're now live in a social media world where speech, the platforms have been so weaponized, monetized, all of those kinds of things does shape public perception. It's not a, a pristine little public marketplace of ideas. It never really was. But so we we would think that the best the cure for hate speech is, is more speech. We would think that you can't we would we were never free speech absolutists because we've both been very involved in gup shared governance, national AUP activities. I'm I serve on the committee A for academic freedom for the AUP. And so we're very keenly aware of the differences between free speech and academic freedom, but we would be very loath and to some extent this is the right position to have, I think, to question someone's academic freedom. But when you start to, but there's a naivete to that. I mean, think about the fact that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote Black Reconstruction and it still took where he said like, oh, this is a, this is the first, he didn't say this is the first big lie because the big lie hadn't happened. But he's, but where he's basically saying the way that the, that Reconstruction has been pawned off on America is completely ideological. And so to set the record straight and then it, took, you know, another 30 years or 40 years, and it took white scholars like Eric Foner and others to sort of bring this into the mainstream. And I guess the context of the book really, in some respects, is the fact that the, the fact that it, it, it never actually really got quite into the mainstream in a certain sense. And so what, what became what became consensus for, for people, for academics, for historians, for scholars, for you know, highly educated public, what became common sense hadn't become common sense strongly enough so that it could, the sort of, we could revert back after, with the backlash to Obama. And so given that what, what had become common knowledge in a certain way was now being 
attacked on, during the Trump years was being weaponized, the dog whistling, and that then, and to the point where now we're seeing the legislation attacking work on race and gender justice, it's that's an attack on academic freedom, first and foremost in our book, not on free speech. But to just just go back for a second, we actually, the, the legislative attacks hadn't happened yet when we started the book. Because, you know, it's such a long, extended period. I love the speech acts piece. And it, what it made me think of right away was the definition or the practice, the possible practice of speech acts is different if you are a white man versus if you are a woman versus if you are a person of color, right? You're just the possibility and the realm of the possible for a speech act is very different. And Absolutely. Um, I, that's immediately what you made me think of in what you just said, but also in the book. And I'd love to move to reception because the reception's been all over the place from right and left. And, you know, I mean, I've read some of the reviews and it is, you're, you know, I think you walk into the heart of academia within this book and what is held sacred for many. And, you know, you were talking about you kind of have to be inside it to understand parts of it. But I think you also have to be inside faculty culture to understand the solution of a committee, right? Like that kind of the understand shared governance and when it works really, really well to understand that as a possible solution. I think we expected the the reception that we've been getting is uh, we expected. And, and to a certain extent, we were prepared for it because our first book in 2015 which is much more about the rise of contingent faculty and how that undermines shared governance and the need to renew tenure and expand tenure because you really don't have academic freedom if you don't have job security, first and foremost. And because we have let the, the, the sort of abuse and exploitation of academic labor get to the point where we have, we're really, we're really tempted by rationalizations of Passive faculty don't have academic freedom, but many do not. Right. Exactly. But but we want to act like everybody teaching in the classroom has academic freedom. And it's just simply not true. So that was our first book. So there's a way in which with this book, the backlash is precisely from the people we don't care about. <laughs> so it's Amazon <laughs> expected it from, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So and we are getting just like with the first book. We're getting lots of emails and people, and we're getting, you know, I just talked at San Diego State. I talked at Smith College. We have lots of invitations because people, the faculty who know that these are issues we have to grapple with, that we're responsible for in some way because they're seeping out into the public sphere in a way that's pro profoundly damaging, not just to actual human beings, but to also to democracy. So there are people who, who we're having a lot of conversations across the country that show that the people we want to reach are being reached. Yes. But because this very debate has gotten, it has itself gotten weaponized. Yes. And well, and I think if you, if, if people don't understand why elected officials are going after tenure, right? Like they're going after tenure because of academic freedom and freedom of speech. I mean, this is why they're going after tenure. They're not going to save money or anything like that. They're going because it's a protected group somewhat that can speak out and speak against them and what they're doing. And then this is a silencing mode. Absolutely foremost. Academic freedom, people don't understand. And perhaps, you know, if we were writing the book now, probably half of it would be about the issue, not of extramural speech, not of the way in which, because the infrastructure for higher ed has changed so dramatically, 
most people don't have access to tenure. So now we need to protect that contingent faculty who find themselves on campus reform or college fix and some kind of controversy because they've done, they've actually taught precisely the way that we all consider reasonable and responsible. And a conservative student has lobbied that against them in some way. So we, we were dealing with, there are two kinds of faculty that we wanted this committee to kind of be able to address. Faculty who were simply not renewed, but they suspected it was for academic freedom reasons, like having some kind of backlash to something that they said, who are off the tenure track. Faculty who are tenured who seem to be taking this opportunity to rise to some kind of national fame, get themselves a post at Manhattan Institute think tank, whatever, be able to sue the university for millions of dollars with, you know, Coke Foundation money behind them. And, and who are spreading essentially misinformation, disinformation that, that 99% of their peers in whatever discipline would say, that's ludicrous, but we can't catch them anymore. So there's a that's that's the problem we're trying to fix. If we were writing it today, probably some of the book, after all of this legislative attacks, which again, hadn't happened yet, uh, probably a lot of the book would be about the, the question of academic freedom for individual faculty versus for institutional autonomy. That's an open, constant, messy question that has not been resolved in the courts. And so institutional autonomy is what you were getting at, Mary, when you said they want to neutralize and paralyze universities as independent sources of authority and knowledge. Yeah. So Meg has a question about Ron DeSantis. So I do. Yes. January wrote a piece, Ron DeSantis' Racial Fascism for the mm -hmm. FD blog. Thoughts on its reception and what? What's going on in Florida? Well, lo loads of thoughts on what's going on in Florida. Thoughts on its reception. I put a lot of effort into those academe blog posts, but they don't have much readership. So I don't think they're... I, I can say really dramatic things in those blog posts and there's no reaction. I can say mild things in a podcast with fire and I get incredible hate mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about so, the, the niche of the audience. Yeah, no, I started looking at many of your things on there and I was like, wow, she is really prolific and she is saying some really radical things here. <laughs> you, um, but, you know, it just sort of dies. And so, which is fine because it actually is a great place to build your thinking, to have a, a site where you're, you get, you know, you can sort of put it out there and then you, you need to figure out how you're going to stand behind it. But yeah, but so the reception wise, there wasn't, you know, not much reaction to Ron DeSantis's racial fascism. But as far as the Florida stuff goes, HB 999 completely guts academic freedom, the political appointees. What we're looking at that, you know, where there's two ways to think about what Ron DeSantis is doing. One is in terms of racial fascism and the long, you know, and it's related to the other the other way of thinking about it, which is, can it happen here? It already happened. And now we're trying to recreate it to some extent, or we're trying to stop us from understanding that history. And so there's a, if fascism, there's a, what he's doing is fascist in the sense that it's very much like Viktor Orban and Hungary, all of the different kind of mechanisms where, by which you bring universities to heal through political appointees, through changing, through tenure, post-tenure reviews that then become up to the boards to decide the fate of tenured faculty, to, you know, literally pulling out a president of New College, because technically we've never bothered to make sure that shared governance is real in the sense that faculty actually have power in that 
shared governance because it's still almost always advisory. Advisory to the president, advisory to the board. That's still there almost everywhere, which means that he can do these kinds of things that are, that shock us because they're so, we've been used to operating in a certain world where there's a certain amount of respect for the integrity of knowledge, shared governance, faculty control of curriculum, et cetera. And he can gut all that in all these ways that are a little bit behind the scenes for most of the public, but that are very similar to the kinds of things that Orban has done to hold on to power and to turn a democracy, a liberal democracy, into a populist democracy and or authoritarian situation. So Ron DeSantis is very good at that. And people don't, I think the ways in which the levers he can pull, people don't understand. And also we don't understand that when you go after race in our country, that is a kind of fascist move because it's an anti-democratic. Who counts? Who counts as a citizen in our country? Who are we teaching? Whose history are we teaching? So, yeah. So I think the, the, the I do a lot of work on China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And to me, it's so obvious what's happening in terms of in a one-party state, you know, not Taiwan, not Hong Kong until very recently. But in a one-party state, you don't have academic freedom, period. Because you everything, the government, the relationship between the government and the different kinds of institutions of the society, there's no, there's no barrier between them. There's no firewall at all. It's and a, a tool of the government, right? It's huh? it's a tool. It's a tool of the government. Yeah, yeah, right. In a democracy, there's supposed to be some kind of buffer among these, you know, our whole checks and balances kind of thing. And the universities are kind of part of that for the state kind of checks and balances. But if you don't respect that and you got that, you're you're turning knowledge into a function of a one party state. It may be a one party re- Republican supermajority for four years, and then it may turn over, and we could. But that's chaos. That's chaos, and it also goes hand-in-hand hand with the fundamental deterioration of public trust and the integrity of our knowledge. If we're changing what we teach and how we teach it every four years, who's going to believe anything we do? Well, I'm part of K-12, that's what K-12 is under, right? And so then we get these, that's a whole different issue, right? Like they come through high school and they come to us and they, they've been in that flip-flop situation. And when they move- Much more so than we are. We like to wrap up with kind of some thoughts And I think for me, it really, I've written in the past a long time ago about universities as a tool of, you know, it's a a space of making citizens, right? It's a a Mm -hmm. nationalist tool. And Mm -hmm. I think that what terrifies me about Ron DeSantis is that instead of shutting down university, he has seen the power of using universities as a tool. And that is even more terrifying than Absolutely. shutting them down. Because... In two ways, right? So he's using it as a tool to rally a national base in the way that a lot of right-wing politicians, Glenn Youngkin in, in Virginia, a lot of right-wing politicians are doing. Culture wars is a way of gaining attention and gaining an audience and looking like a strong man, essentially. But the thing that I think you're speaking to is so much more important, and that's the carrots that he's using, the money that he's putting into hiring faculty for, and the money that he's putting into Hamilton centers and different kinds of centers of, of civic life that will be about our founding fathers and our foundational values. That's right. my big takeaway from this conversation. Thank Absolutely. You. Well, that's the only takeaway. Well, the first takeaway everyone should have. <laughs> Meg, any comments before we close? Well, I feel like we could talk for six hours. So I feel a little <laughs> 
<laughs> and then, you know, very stuffy. I've got a 10 year old, and he's like out in this wild world of elementary school and social media learning, and it scares the hell out of me. Thank you so much for joining us. Ah, this was very, very fun. Thank you, too. Yeah, I love your podcast. I can't wait to keep listening to all of them. Okay. Jennifer, thank you. Lots to think about and so much more to do. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with Magdalena Barrera, Vice Provost for Faculty Success and Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at San Diego State University and co-author of The Latinx Guide to Graduate School.